You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel. And we are um, in chapter 7. If you were here last week, you know that we began to look at this chapter, just the first half of it. And because there is so much in it, it is so central to the book of Daniel as a whole, we, we just looked at the first half. Today we're going to look at the second half. And one thing we discovered right away is the second half is totally different than the first half. The first half, chapters 1 through 6, is about Daniel's adventures in Babylon. Um, it's, it's historical narrative. And the second half of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, is about Daniel's visions while he was in Babylon and it's apocalyptic prophecy. And by apocalyptic, I mean prophecy that's not just concerning the future, but concerning the end or the end times. It's a whole different literary genre that communicates as much as, uh, it communicates in imagery as much as it does in words. And therefore, while visions communicate accurately, they don't always communicate precisely. Images are just not as precise as words. On the other hand, images generally have a greater impact on your emotions. And so these visions not only inform your mind, but they're intended by the Holy Spirit to impact your heart for God. Last week we looked at the vision itself, this week the interpretation, which is found in verses 15 through 27. And if you were not here I really encourage you to go back and watch online. It'll really help you make a lot more sense of this morning's message. I can't, and I don't have the time to go back and review it completely, but you can go watch it online on our website or on YouTube. Also, the transcript is available every week, and in addition to that, coming very soon, podcasts on iTunes and Spotify, so you'll be able to listen to the message uh, that way. A lot of people have been asking that for a while, so it's coming. A few weeks. Anyway, verse 15 is where we're at. Let's start. Daniel says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. Now, now we said again last week, Daniel's vision is just more than a vision. It's a vision with multiple scenes that are coming up before Daniel, one right after the other in succession. That's why when you read through this chapter, you'll see several times Daniel says, and I saw, and then I saw, and then there appeared. Think of it just like a a screen was before him, and these visions were one right after the other coming before him. The vision does not leave him with a very good feeling at all. It doesn't leave him with Holy Ghost goosebumps. Instead, it causes him, he says, to be troubled in spirit, and deeply disturbed, so much so that he, he asked for clarifications from, and I quote, one of those standing there. Alongside Daniel were other beings who were watching the vision with him. Now the default understanding of this is that these beings were, were angels, which is partly correct. Angel-like would be a better understanding because These beings that are revealed here and actually throughout the book of Daniel, they do more than angelic messenger running. 
They do more than deliver errands for God. These beings actually form a divine council that makes decisions with God, as we saw in the case of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment over in chapter 4. We're going to take a closer look at these beings in upcoming chapters, but for now it is apparent that Daniel perceives that they know a lot more about the vision than he does. And so he asked them for some clarification, verse 16. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are the four kings that will arise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Now, last week, when we studied the vision, we learned that these four kings or kingdoms were the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and then finally the, the Roman kingdom or empire. The first three, we learned, were stripped of their authority. The fourth one, or fourth beast, was slain and destroyed in verse 12. Following that, the next scene of Daniel's vision was the Ancient of Days, or God the Father, giving the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, everlasting dominion to rule a kingdom that will never pass away. So the idea here, the picture, the thing that's being communicated is this. You have these four beast-like kingdoms that one after the other after the other. And so the idea is that one sin-corrupted kingdom after another will rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, until the kingdom of God fully arises and rules over the whole earth. The kingdom broke into this world in Jesus Christ, but it will fully manifest at a second coming. So it broke into the world at his first coming. It will fully manifest and become visible at his second coming. And that's exactly, remember, what was revealed by Nebuchadnezzar's vision that Daniel interpreted over in Daniel chapter 2. Remember the statue, which represented the same four kingdoms, was in the end crushed by a rock that was not hewn. And that rock then uh, proceeded to grow into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. The rock is Jesus Christ. The mountain is the kingdom of God, which one day will fill the whole earth and never end. Right now it's an invisible kingdom. One day it will be visible with Christ physically reigning. And that means this, that there is a day that's coming that will be a day of perfect righteousness, of perfect justice, the world will not always be under the curse of sin as it is now. The, the oppression of sinful kings and unjust governments will be no more. Jesus will return and destroy the beast and all its cohorts. All will be made new. The Prince of Peace will reign in the Garden of Eden 2.0. And just knowing that, just knowing that God will bring about that future reality changes the way that, that we look at the chaos in the, in the present. I mean, in a word, it gives us hope. That's the hope. That's the confident expectation of what will come because God has promised it. But there's more here. Verse 18 says that after the time of the four beasts, when the Son of Man is given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days, verse 18, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Now, what, which one is it? We have two groups. We have two people 
receiving the kingdom here. Verse 14 says, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will receive the kingdom that will never end. Verse 18 says, the holy people will possess the kingdom that will last forever and ever. Some translations have the saints or God's people. It refers to those who belong to God. And it says that they will receive the kingdom that lasts forever. That they will possess the kingdom that lasts forever and ever. Now, the New Testament explanation of this is that Christ receives the kingdom. And because we, believers in Christ, are in Christ, we receive the kingdom right along with Him. In fact, we get everything He gets. This is the first time in the Bible... Um, and the first of three times in Daniel 7 where we are told that one day we'll not only be a part of this perfect kingdom that will last forever, but we ourselves will inherit and possess that kingdom. Now that's stunning. The Bible teaches us that everything that Jesus deserves in his humanity as the result of his his, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, everything he deserves for that will be shared with us. Again, stunning. His victory, 1 Corinthians 15, will be a shared victory. It'll be shared with us. It's our victory. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory. His victory is shared with us. His inheritance will be shared with us, Ephesians 1. His glory will be shared with us, Romans 8, 17. His kingdom will be shared with us. And what makes this so great, what makes these gifts so great, is not just, of course, the greatness of the gifts. I mean, think his inheritance, his victory, his glory, his kingdom. But what makes it so great is not just the greatness of the gifts, but the greatness of a God who would so profusely and freely give of himself to those who deserve nothing but his judgment for their sin. In other words, we deserve judgment for our sin, but guess what? We get the kingdom. We don't only get in the kingdom, we get the kingdom. And, and, and the Father's not doing this reluctantly. Over in the gospel in Luke 12, Jesus said to the disciples, your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Your Father delights to welcome you into the kingdom? No, he does. But that's not what he says here. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. Now, that's part of our future. We call that future grace. And as we continually to re renew our mind to future grace, that grace reserved for us in the future, that grace reserved for us in heaven, it empowers us. So it not only makes us, it not only uh, strengthens our hope, but it very much empowers us to fight the good fight of faith here on the earth. And this endurance is even rewarded by God because it even gets better. There's one more step to this. We not only get in the kingdom, we not only have a Father who delights to give us the kingdom, but if we persevere, there's something else that comes. Second Timothy 2, if we died with Him, we'll also live with Him. Notice, if we endure, we will also so, that's wrong. I feel like Peter on the boat. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Like, that's too much, God. What do you mean reign with you? We'll not only be welcomed into the kingdom, we'll not only share the kingdom, but we're going to share in the rulership 
of the kingdom if we endure, if we're faithful. Now, I don't know all that that entails, but I do know this. God saved us not only to rescue us from beastly kingdoms in this world and to bring us into his glorious kingdom, but he also saved us in order that in the coming ages, Ephesians 2, 7, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. What does that mean? What does incomparable mean? It means there's nothing in this life, in this universe, that you could use even to remotely compare to what's coming. There nothing exists by which you could form a link to somehow grasp on to the glory of what is to coming. It does not exist in humanity, in anybody's vocabulary, or in anything created. It is absolutely incomparable, this grace. Future grace. In this life, he shows us his saving grace. In the next life, he'll show us the incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, as great as they are, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they're just the beginning. They're just a minute fraction of what is to come. They're just, Paul says, a down payment on the full payment, Ephesians 1 says. So there is a future. There is an incomparable glorious grace to come, a glorious victory, a glorious inheritance, a glorious kingdom. One day our, our status, our spiritual status in Christ, we're seated with him in heavenly places, will become a physical reality. We'll be seated with him in heavenly places, in the new heavens and the new earth. And with that in mind, we need to ask ourselves a question, and I have to do this all the time. Is it possible that we have underestimated our future in Christ? Or that perhaps we only have kind of this sentimental understanding of it, you know, we're going to a better place. That's an undersell. Where there's going to be streets of gold in the sweet by and by. That's pathetic. When it comes to what is actually awaiting us. You know, one reason that we struggle with temptation and sin, one reason we struggle with faithfulness and perseverance is that we do not live with a clear vision, with a working understanding of our future in Christ. And when I mean working understanding, I mean that this is a part of the way that we think. It's not just a fact, a theological fact that we've stored over here that we know that we recognize that we can access whenever we're talking about things like this. No, I'm talking about something that's a working understanding, something that's, that's part of the, our, the way that we think, that's part of our worldview, that's a part of the way that we look at things. That we have a working understanding of our future in Christ or of, of future grace. Because it makes it much easier to overcome sin and temptation. It makes it much easier to remain faithful and persevere if we had just set our heart and our minds on what is to come. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, you've been born again. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. 
For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You won't just see his glory, you'll be in his glory. Because he's sharing it with us, Romans 8 tells us. It's just hard to even wrap our minds around. But we have to try to because it's a stabilizing force in our lives. A force that we need more and more and more in these current days. And as your vision of this future kingdom becomes more clear, you'll become more and more dissatisfied with the kingdoms of this world. You'll become disenfranchised with them. They won't do for you what they used to do. You'll see them as they are. Counterfeits of the real kingdom to come. You won't fall for that counterfeit glory. The taste buds of your soul will not be satisfied with the pond water of this world. You will only settle for the living, flowing water of the Holy Spirit. And that's the power of future grace. And that's why we always have to be reminded of it. That's why I say we need a working understanding of it because of what it does in our life in the present. Now, in the next few verses... Daniel again presses this supernatural being for even more information about the fourth beast, about the ten horns, and about the dominant horn, which is often called the the little horn. In verse 19, he says, then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed, devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I wanted... I also wanted to know about the the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell off. The horn that looked more imposing than the others that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, if I'm Daniel and I've had this vision, I think I'm going to ask about the first beast because that's the one that that was really currently oppressing the exiles in Babylon. I want to know what's going to happen to that beast because... That will influence when we go home. So please tell me about the first beast. But he doesn't. Instead, he asks for clarification, not for the second, not for the third, but the fourth. Perhaps it was because the fourth seems to be emphasized somewhat over the others, or it was different than the others. Maybe it was because its power was far greater than the others, or maybe it was because it was the one beast that was mentioned that persecuted the people of God. Whatever the reason, he wanted to know more about the fourth beast and the ten horns and the single horn. And now as he was asking for that, all of a sudden, one more scene of this vision came before him. Verse 21, as I watched, now he's not talking to the heavenly being. Now he's watching again the, 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 the scene in this vision. As I watch, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. So he's seeing this now. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Now, from the first half of Daniel 7, from last week, we know several things about the horn. The horn started little, and grew. It came up among the other ten horns on the top of the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire. It uprooted three of the ten horns. It had human eyes and a mouth that spoke boastful words. Now, verse 21 adds that it waged war against the holy people and defeated them until the moment that it was judged by the Ancient of Days. Now, following this last scene in the vision, 
the heavenly being now gives Daniel the rest of the clarification. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. Now, as previously mentioned, again, the, uh, the four beasts are four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, which ruled a period of time from 626 B.C. to 476 A.D. Now, if you've ever wondered about the trustworthiness of biblical prophecy, this ought to do it for you right here. <laughs> because Daniel prophesies this near the end of the Babylonian kingdom. He, by the Spirit of God speaking through him, tells exactly what's going to happen in the next thousand years exactly. And that's exactly the way it happened. Those were the four kingdoms. It happened exactly. And there are other details yet to come in visions that are found later on in Daniel that add to this. It's so precise. And when you consider that preciseness, it demands that you go, okay, I better listen to the rest of this thing and maybe try to figure it out because this brother's right on. The Holy Spirit's speaking through this guy. Here is the Word of God, right? So the ten horns and the ten kings or kingdoms are, that simultaneously come out of the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. And the first question then is, well, who are those ten horns? And when do they or did they emerge out of the fourth beast in some form of the Roman Empire? Who are the ten horns? Well, there's four major views. This isn't a prophecy class, so I'm going to whip through them real, real quick, okay? Because we're, we're, we're not studying prophecy. We are, but we're really studying the book of Daniel. I could be turning to Revelation, every other verse here. But we're trying to just focus on Daniel as a book and not have to support it uh, with, with other passages. Because what we really kind of want to do is put ourselves in the place of the people who first heard or heard Daniel's letter read to them. What were their impressions? What would they have gotten from this? Sometimes they think that we look at prophecy and we just go, oh, it's just way too complicated. And that's really too bad because it can all be understood firsthand by any believer. Maybe not every nuance and detail, but the main message of what's being communicated here. And that's why we're approaching Daniel this way. But there's four views here of who the, uh, the ten horns. First of all, there's the old Rome view, and that's the ten horns represent ten rulers who ruled in various parts of the Roman Empire before it fell. This could be emperors, it could be rulers. Second of all, there's the fallen Rome view. The horns represent ten kingdoms which occupied the territory of Rome after Rome fell in 476 A.D. The third view is the continuing Rome view. And that's held by those who believe that the number 10 is not really to be taken literally, but rather as, a, as the Hebrew uh, has as a number of completeness. 10 in the Hebrew is a number of completeness. And so the 10 kingdoms would, would represent all of the kingdoms that followed after Rome fell right up to the present day and up to when the little horn will be revealed. And so if this view is true, we right now are living in the time of the ten horns. And then there's one more view. There's the future Rome view. And that's where the ten horns represent ten actual nations that come out of a revived 
future Roman Empire that is located somewhere within the geographical boundaries of the old Roman Empire. And this would include, this would include uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, and portions of the Middle East. And of course, this has led some people to consider that maybe the EU, the European uh, Common Market, is the initial stage, perhaps, of the formation of this revived Roman Empire. Of course, there's problems with all of these views. The problem with the first two views, that the ten horns have come and gone, is that the events that happened after the ten horns come and go obviously have not happened. The single horn rising to power over the whole world, the judgment of that horn, and the incoming of the kingdom obviously has not happened. So that's the problem with the first two. So let's just, let's just check those two off right away. Then there's a problem with the third view. That's the ten horns are symbolic of all the major kingdoms that followed after Rome fell. Well, the problem with that is this, is that if the fourth beast is a specific nation, right, if it's a literal nation, why then, when we get to the horns, do we call them symbolic? If the beast is a real nation, then it follows that the horns are also a real nation, that they are, it's a literal nation, not a symbolic thing. So I think we should maybe shuffle that one aside too, but there's a problem with the last view too. And that last view is the ten horns are a future coalition of nations that occupy the geographic, some of the geographical region, area, boundaries of the old Roman Empire. And the problem is logistics. I mean, how could the geographical area of the old Roman Empire, which is comprised of so many ethnicities, languages, religions, governing models, nations, there's 27 nations right now in, in, the, in the EU. How could all those come together and form some kind of ten-nation coalition? I tell you what, there's going to be a, there'll be a lot of Brexit, right? There's going to be a lot of people pulling out or pulling in or combining to form a ten-nation coalition. All right, so I don't know about all that. I don't have the answer to that. I'm not going to say it is such and such or this and that. But I do know this, and here's one thing we can know, and here's one thing that is that is certain that almost everybody agrees upon is that the single horn has yet to rise up. Okay? That the single horn that comes out of the ten that defeats the three others and rises up has yet to appear on the world stage. It's still in the future. And there is more information about him in the chapters to come, but also these verses right here. Look at verse 24. After them, that's the ten horns or kings or kingdoms, another king will arise. Different from the earlier ones. He'll subdue the three kings. We already saw that with the horns. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the holy, his holy people and try, notice this, to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and a half time. But the court, this is the heavenly court, the council, will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Now, two more facts here about the little horn, the single horn. What had been implied earlier by the fact that this horn, not the other ones, just this one, had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully, 
is now made explicit. The little horn appears to be more than a kingdom, but rather an individual also. And this individual will achieve enormous power by subduing three of the other kingdoms which will be dominating the world stage at this time. There's going to be this ten-nation coalition. This little horn will rise up and be most powerful. And in addition to waging war, he, uh, he uh, oppresses the holy people for a, spe uh, a specified period of time. It says here, a time, times, and a half time. And in addition to speaking boastfully about the Most High, he tries to change the set times and the laws that the Most High has decreed. But just like the fourth beast, he'll be judged, slain, thrown into a blazing fire. He'll be completely destroyed. Now, these facts clearly communicate that the single horn and the little horn is whom the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist who opposes the kingdom of God vocally, physically, and legally. Vocally, he will speak out against the Most High. Physically, he'll oppress the holy people, launching a vicious, vicious campaign of persecution. And part of that persecution will be legally. He'll try to change the set times and the laws. In other words, he'll try to replace God's law with his own counterfeit law. He'll try to replace God's end-time calendar with his own end-time calendar. And he will do all of this ultimately because he's, he's trying to oppose and to replace God's kingdom with his own counterfeit kingdom. From the very beginning, Satan is a counterfeiter. Always has been, always will be. Nothing original, pure counterfeiter. Jesus is the true king. The Antichrist is the counterfeit king. The kingdom of God is the true kingdom. The Antichrist will try to set up a counterfeit kingdom. The kingdom of God that is coming will be comprehensive. It will be political. It will be economic. It will be spiritual. Well, the same thing is true with the kingdom of the Antichrist because he's a counterfeiter. So there will be a counterfeit political, economic, and spiritual kingdom that he'll try to establish, a one world government with one dominant religion. And this plan of the Antichrist not only indicates that he'll have incredible power, but that also he's incredibly arrogant and pretentious. For a while, it says here, it'll seem that he's actually having success. The holy people will be given into the hand of the little horn for a time, times, and a half time. And if time is a year, then the expression, if we are going to take it literally, would mean the Antichrist would prevail over the holy people for a period of three and a half years, right? Time, times, and a half time. If we assume times is two, we don't know that for sure, but if we do, it would be three and a half years until the Most High then enters the scene again, judges, destroys him. Now, we'll come back, hopefully, to that later on in this series. But what I want to end with this morning is what I talked about earlier, kind of more of a general observation if you were to sit down and read this chapter through a couple times. What impressions would it give you? What is the big picture here? Let's not focus in just on a tree or two. Let's take a look at the whole forest. And if you did, what would you come away with? I mean, certainly that is 
what the recipients, the first recipients, the exiles in Babylon would have taken away. They wouldn't have wondered, well, you know, what is every detail of what's going on? They would have been impressed with three or four things. I'm going to give you four this morning. First of all, here's what they would have walked away. They would have read that and they go this. Well, one thing I know for sure, God is God. That's one thing they would have come away with on this. He's righteous in that all his ways are right. He's just in that he punishes sin. He is good to those who trust him. And he is gracious in all the good he does. All the good he does is, is undeserved and, and freely giving. But the thing they would have come away with the most and that they would have realized the most about God is that above anything else, he is a sovereign God over the nations and he does what he wills. And that's exactly how the vision concludes. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Notice this, His kingdom, ours and His, but ultimately His, will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey Him. That's the first thing, God is God. Second thing they would have come away with is this, nations are evil. Nations and governments and people who rule them are intrinsically evil. Although God has created and granted governing authority, Romans 13 says, as a part of his plan, the use of that authority is always corrupted. So government is a good thing as an ideal Governing authority is necessary to keep the human race from destroying itself, from anarchy, from chaos. But even though it's a good thing in that it keeps that all from happening, it, it is also something that always, always, always is corrupt. The only exception is the kingdom of God and the ultimate king. He's uncorruptible. And that's why the Bible says, seek first, above any human kingdom, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So Daniel's vision reveals that from God's point of view, the state is not a noble thing, but a necessary thing. A necessary thing to hold back social chaos. But it's not only a necessary thing, it's also a beast-like thing. All governing powers described as beastly. Do you see that? They're beasts that conquer and devour those who are subject to it. In Daniel's vision, kings and governments are pictured not only as beasts, but one of them in particular has horns, raising its horn up in pride and rebellion against God. All through the Bible and through the Psalms, you see the rebellion of the nations against God. The rebellion of government. The rebellion of kings and rulers. We've seen it all the way through Daniel. There's never been a king who hasn't rebelled. This is the overwhelming testimony of history. The state is necessary, but ultimately beast-like. There are momentary exceptions, of course, when by God's common grace... A nation turns to God and obeys His law. But those exceptions are brief exceptions because nations and governments and leaders and kings are made up of people 
And people are inherently sinful. And that's the third thing they would have come away with from this. The backdrop of this whole vision is that humanity as a whole is in sinful rebellion against God. The classic statement, of course, on the the scope and the depth of that sin is found in Romans 3, where Paul weaves together a series of quotations from the Old Testament that universally condemn all of humanity. It reads like this, Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. I mean, that's devastating. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Every person who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ did not become a believer because they sought God. It's because God sought them and enabled them to turn around and seek Him. Well, it says it right here. No one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. I hear that all the time, everywhere I go in public. The bomb flies all over the place. Open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. We're so used to lies, it's normal. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now there's the history of the human race. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, after this, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are, he answers the rest of it, justified freely through the grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. But here's the whole point. You don't know you need that grace until you know what the spiritual condition you have before you receive that grace. But here's the thing these original recipients would have realized about God more than anything else. He is sovereign over the nations. He does what He wills. Number one, nations and rulers are evil and wicked as a whole. Humanity is sinful. And even though there's nobody in this room as evil and wicked as Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, the Babylonian kings, right? The sinful nature is in every one of us and it has the potential to take us down that very road but for the grace of God. You can't look at someone who's real evil and go, that would never be me. Under the right conditions and the right circumstances. So with that in mind, we should not be surprised then that human government always, always, always trends towards corruption and oppression. Whether that be a democracy where the power rests with the people or a democracy like ours that's really more of an oligarchy where the real power rests in unelected institutions and a small group of corrupt, powerful people. The more you know about the history of our government, especially in the 20th and 21st century, the more disillusioned you will become. The saying power corrupts is always true. It's always true. 
because of the nature of sin. Many believers are naive about this corruption because they don't understand what the Bible says about the depths of human depravity, nor the power of the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And we'll talk about that in Daniel 10. They underestimate the power of Satan as influence on the human race. They underestimate the power of indwelling sin and the corruption that it produces. But other believers, are, are they're cognizant of this corruption, but they simply don't want to live. And I found this over and over. They don't want to live in a world that's as evil as it really is because they need a happy place to have a happy life. Don't, don't even want to talk about it. So they pretend evil is less prevalent than it is, and they insulate themselves from being made aware of it. And that's been easy to do, really, in a country that's been so blessed with a Christian heritage in our past. But all that's changed. It's all changed now. The evil that's always been there is more obvious because, well, evil is becoming more and more evil. Because we're moving what? Closer and closer to the date that Daniel's vision is speaking about here. Now, nobody knows the exact timeline for sure, but you got to send something in your gut. Eventually, somewhere out of the ten horns of the fourth beast, a single horn will arise who will be evil personified, possessed by Satan, and become the Antichrist. But Paul calls the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He sets himself up. He prepares. Jesus said similar things in the Sermon on uh, uh, Mount of Olives. I was going to say Beatitudes. That was at the beginning. This one's the last. Right before Jesus is arrested. One of his most famous sermons. And, and in that sermon, Matthew 24 and 25, he, he talks about a lot of the things to come. Teaches his disciple. And he warned his disciples and us that there's going to be there's going to be many false Christs, antichrists that arise before the ultimate antichrist, the one, the single, the horn. And there's always going to be wars and, and rumors of wars, but that will increase. There'll be widespread apostasy, uh, apostasy. Many, many, many will turn from the faith. Many. That's what he says. He doesn't say a few are going to fall away. He says many will fall away. People will hate and betray one another. Wickedness, I'm quoting Jesus, wickedness will increase. And then when all this is building up, there will ultimately come a great time of distress, unequaled from the beginning of the human race, and will never be equaled again. It will be ushered in. Still, in spite of all this great turmoil that will cause the hearts of many to tremble, Jesus says these words, see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And that is the last impression that Daniel's audience would have taken away from this. Don't be alarmed because God is God. And therefore, fourthly, God's people are secure. Now, if you think about that, think about what Jesus said. If you go back and read all of that, it's quite alarming. Right? False 
Christ, wars, apostasy, hatred, betrayals, wickedness, corrupt governments. No truth to be found. All darkness. So now you look at that and you go, how can I not be troubled about that? That's just a natural reaction. Well, the answer is in spite of those things. God is in control history and working out everything in accordance with his just and all-wise plan. And we learn from Daniel chapter 7, part of that plan includes the Son of Man coming on the clouds to rescue his own from the oppression of the beastly kingdoms and bringing them into the possession of a kingdom with a perfect ruler that will last forever and ever and ever, a kingdom that never fades away, aeon upon aeon upon aeon upon aeon. He'll show us the exceeding riches of his grace. Paul said the Antichrist or the lawless one, that he'll set himself up to proclaim himself God. So what will happen next? Verse 8 says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That's what I take away. That's my visual. Jesus comes back. Done. Done. Concerning that day, Peter adds, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where righteousness will dwell. No more beasts. No more beast kingdoms. Pure righteousness. Perfect ruler. The government will be upon the shoulders of the Prince of Peace. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. You know what Peter was doing there? He was answering some of the people who were objecting to him, saying, yeah, we've heard this before, Peter. Peter says, I know, but the only reason that it's continuing, the only reason that this hasn't started yet, the only reason the little horn hasn't come on the scene yet is because God is patient with you. And his patience means salvation. So what does that mean? He could wrap it up a long time ago, but he hasn't. He's waiting. He's waiting. Why? The verse right around there says in verse 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. It's almost like the ark door. He's leaving it open. It will close eventually. But in his mercy, in his patience, he says, come. Now, while there's still time, you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ. Now, there's still time. Now come. We don't know when these events will take place. They may start tomorrow. Certainly, we're in that season. But you know for a fact that you've never really surrendered to Christ you've never really believed the gospel that you do need a savior because you are in Romans 3 there's none righteous no not one nobody's ever going to up before God one day and say well you know I've been a pretty good person right or I wasn't as bad as X Y and Z it won't make any difference it won't make any difference he says all fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is a standard, not some good person next to you or some bad person to make it easy for you to get in. Just find a bad person. I'm in. 
And if that was the case, then why would Jesus ever have to come and give his life on the cross? Why would God at an infinite cost to himself have to give up his own son? Because there's no other way. Because nobody can be good enough. That's exactly what Romans 3 says. But the good news is, you don't have to be good enough. He was good for you. He already did it for you. But you've got to receive it. You've got to believe it. Christ died on the cross for your sins and he rose again. That's the gospel. There is a moment, though, when we believe. So I'm inviting you this morning to seize that moment this morning. I want to lead you in a confession of faith. Romans 10 says that it's with the heart we believe, but it's with the mouth we confess and are saved. We speak what God is doing in our heart. See, we believe in our heart we are saved, but the, the evidence of that is the, is, is the confession with our mouth. We believe. You don't even have to close your eyes. But you do have to believe. You have to believe. And this is a statement of belief. Let's say it together. I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross. He rose again from the dead to make me right with God. I've turned from my sin. I've trusted in Christ. From this moment forward, I'm a child of God. Not by my own goodness, but by Christ's goodness. By what Christ did. By Christ's death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Kept you a little long today. Hope you don't mind that tough to get through Daniel 7 that fast so next week Daniel 8 or the week after let's all stand I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward if you would like to talk to anybody about that prayer you prayed or maybe you would like prayer for something that's going on in your life we'll be up here to pray with you if you have a chance to hang out and fellowship do so if not safe travels see you next week